In the spirit and celebration of the Beijing Summer Olympics, ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, is happy to present this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. What is the role of a chief medical officer for the Olympics? Welcome to a special series focused on sports medicine. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, your host, and my guest today is Dr. John Davis Cantwell, Director of Preventive Cardiology and Cardiac Rehabilitation at Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Cantwell served as Chief Medical Officer for the 1996 Olympic Games and has authored or co-authored seven books. Dr. Cantwell, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I'd like to go back in time, if you don't mind, to 1996. You served as the chief medical officer, correct? Yes. So what does that really entail? What was your job? I think the chief medical officer is in charge of all medical operations regarding the Olympics. He's responsible for about 10,000 athletes and 6,000 volunteers and Ten or 15,000 Olympic family members and up to 1.5 million spectators. So, That's a lot of human beings. So it's a big job, and uh, we had a great team to deal with all that. I would assume there was more than you who was providing the medical care, but you oversaw the entire team. We had about uh, 4,000 medical volunteers on the team and a variety of nurses, uh, Red Cross workers, and a variety of multi-specialty doctors as well. What kind of things happened routinely during the Olympics that were um, just common things that the medical staff would have to take care of? Well, injuries were like 35% of all the encounters, and most of the uh, like spectator things were heat-related illnesses. There were like 100 or so cardiovascular issues that we needed to deal with. There are a lot of things. I mean, it brings in a lot of people to the games, and older people come with medical problems and can get respiratory infections and contusions, abrasions, lacerations, chest pains, flare-up of blood pressure. So pretty much everything. Yeah, pretty everything much. Everything you'd see in an acute care center or uh-huh. an emergency room. Yeah. Were there were there things that popped up that were unexpected for you that you did not expect or were unprepared for? Well, nothing that we didn't expect. And, uh, I mean, the bomb going off in, That's unexpected. in the Centennial Olympic Park, we had planned for things like that. So we had rehearsed our ambulance responses for mass casualties like that and were able to clear the 110 people who were wounded, get in, out of there into the hospitals within about 30 minutes. Was, so, any, was anyone killed in those bomb blasts? Yes. There were actually two deaths. One was a cameraman from Turkey, I believe, who was rushing and had a fatal heart attack, and the bomb killed one person and wounded about 110 others. Does each team, each country, have their own physician in addition to your team? Most countries do bring their own medical staff, and they're given some quarters within their place in the Olympic Village to handle, you know, kind of minor things. And then the Olympic Polyclinic, their doctors will bring patients there where they're seen by our staff, and our staff would work closely with their team physicians to sort out the problems. Some countries are fairly poor and and didn't have much of a medical staff, so they, they just used the polyclinic. 
Were there translators for yes, every uh-huh. different country? Because uh-huh. uh, that would be quite difficult. How many countries were involved in the 96 games? Well, they're close to 200. You remember any particular favorite stories that happened during those games? Well, one, one particular story was uh, of interest in me. It was in the marathon where we had instructed our medical people not to touch one of the runners that they were down to interfere in any way unless it, it was just absolutely necessary. And one of the runners was on the ground and was having trouble getting going again and with heat cramps and so forth. And an interesting thing, one of the other runners from another country stopped and bent over and worked on the athlete for a while. The two of them ran to the finish line the rest of the way together. Hmm. I I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, That didn't violate anything. It, It just a medical person couldn't intervene, but nobody said one of your fellow competitors couldn't. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a special series focused on sports medicine on Reach MD XM 157. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm talking with Dr. John Cantwell. Dr. Cantwell was the chief medical officer for the 1996 Olympic Games and was responsible for the care of over 10,000 athletes and 1.5 million spectators. Dr. Cantwell, how do things compare now as we approach the Beijing Olympics versus Atlanta Olympics? Has the preparation changed, or is it really the same for every Olympic game? Well, there, there are unique issues to each Olympic Games. I think in Atlanta, most of the questions I got from the media leading up to the Games were, number one, what are you going to do about the heat and humidity? Mm-hmm. And number two, is your drug testing lab going to be up and running? And, uh, you know, I got so many questions about the heat that I finally started answering that they ought to bring a sweater <laughs> And they thought I was being a wise guy, but I said in Barcelona, the dorms weren't air-conditioned. They were very hot, and a number of the athletes complained that they were uncomfortable. And our dorms and everything were air-conditioned, and I just wanted to be sure they didn't uh, get too cool at night and so forth. But the issues can vary. I think in Beijing, the questions they're they're getting is uh, air pollution. Right. Uh, how to get around in a city as big as Beijing, what to do about uh, any terroristic attacks, and what about the water safety and things things of that nature. Well, you, you brought it up. I, I'd like to talk about the air quality because I haven't been to Beijing, but I've heard it is extremely difficult to breathe there. There's enormous pollution, and it's got to affect an athlete's performance. Even if they aren't asthmatic, they could become asthmatic there. You know, I've been to Beijing twice in the last year and once for a week and the other for about three days, and I was not at all impressed with the smog and the pollution. So it's not as bad as the hype. It it seemed to me a lot like Atlanta, but I've talked to some others who've been there where they said they could hardly see across the street. And I think Beijing has the ability to cut the motor traffic in half, to shut down factories, to do this or that. Uh, They have a little more control than we had in Atlanta. So I I don't think that's going to be a big problem. One thing they can't control so much is the dust and sandstorms and stuff coming off the Gobi Desert. That's a little harder to to deal with. But I don't think it'll be that big an issue, and it affects all athletes, you know, pretty much the same. I don't think anyone's used to running in smog. It kind of equalizes everybody's risk. Yeah, I think risks. so. 
and the heat the same way. I think the prudent athlete training for Atlanta would kind of train in the heat and not, you know, in a cooler climate. Is there a certain way that an athlete can prepare himself for that weather? Do they work out in, in different climates in anticipation of the Olympics? Sure. For for example, like I've run in the Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta for many years, and that's July 4th. And one thing you don't want to do training for that is to do your running real early in the morning or late at night when it's a lot cooler. You need to do some training in the heat of the day or around the time that the actual run will take place. So you're just used to the elements because a lot of it is conditioning. And Dr. Cantwell, how long do the athletes have to adapt to the local environment just to even get over their jet lag? Well, they usually come in a little early. Some of them have training camps. Sometimes they come in several weeks before. Sometimes they train in a outlying area and then come into town. So it varies from country to country. But the jet lag shouldn't be too much of an issue because they get there. Unlike the first modern Olympics where the uh, American got there and they were using a different calendar than we used, and they said your event is going to be in you know a few hours after coming over by the boat. James V. Conley was his name, and he won anyway. So, Dr. Cantwell, what are you looking forward to most in the current Olympics? What are you watching and, and paying attention to? Well, I, I don't know. How, how much I'll watch it. I've been to four Olympic Games, and, right. and I'll follow it closely in the paper. I'm not much of a TV watcher. I'll probably tune in to certain events. In Atlanta, I was particularly interested in certain events like the 1,500-meter run and the decathlon and and a few special things like that. And in 1996, what kind of medical procedures were there to monitor the athletes for um, use of illegal drugs? Well, the drug testing is, you know, the top three usually are tested and then others at random. Some of the previous Olympics that I took part in, like when the Dream Team played, they selected two players at random after the games to test. And so we'd be involved in testing those guys. I think it's going to be a little increase this Olympics. They're going to do more tests I think 25% more than the gains in 2004. They're going to do blood tests and about 900 of the athletes. So it's going to be a little more extensive. They're also going to test for growth hormone, and they'll test for EPO or erythropoietin. So I think it's going to be a little more intense, but the problem is the uh, EPO can only be detected for a few days after its use, and there's certain... Uh, anabolic steroids don't hang around very often, so you'd have to be kind of foolish to take stuff, you know, that close to the games, and some people don't know that. Also, they've found now that there may be some genetic things, particularly in Asian men and in about 10% of Caucasians, where they're missing a gene that converts testosterone into the form that dissolves in the urine, so they could potentially use it and not be detected. So there, there's still some holes in the drug testing program. But it, in Atlanta, I think there were only about eight or nine positive drug tests. And how do you personally feel about athletes using anabolic steroids? Well, you know, it, it's harmful. It just As a cardiologist, it drives your HDL cholesterol down. 
and I, I, I don't think they should use it. I don't think baseball players should use it. It kind of levels the playing field if people are drug-free, but there are always going to be people who try to cut corners and get that little extra edge. And when you're talking about like the Olympics where there are certain events where tenths of seconds can make a big difference, uh, you know, they're tempted to do things like that. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. John Cantwell for joining us on the Clinician's Roundtable. You've been listening to a special series focused on sports medicine. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and if you'd like to listen to our full on-demand library, please visit our website at reachmd.com. If you register there with the promo code radio, we'll give you six months free of streaming audio you can listen to at home or at work. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can now call us at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening. You have been listening to Focus on Sports Medicine, part of this month's special series on ReachMD-XM-157, the channel for medical professionals.